All right, we'll get the thing wheeled over here and do our stuff. I am way off this morning, just FYI. So if today's a mess, I apologize. It's been that kind of morning. We should pray before this. (laughs) Father, I lay this day before you. I'm very thankful to be here. I'm very thankful for our church. I'm thankful that the sun rose this morning and you rendered your opinion that we get another chance. Father, we've gathered here together in your name. We've got your word open in front of us. Please bless this time that we have together. Please open your heart and your mind to us that we could grow closer to you. It is your face that we are seeking. It is your blessing that we are seeking. It is your world brought closer to you that we are seeking, Father, and that is why we have gathered here this morning. Please open our eyes. Please open our ears. Please open our minds to you. Amen. So I actually did write bulletins. Um, I just didn't print them. (laughs) I was late to church this morning, and yeah, so I apologize. Um, like I said, it is, it is an off morning. I forgot to put the microphone on until just a few minutes ago. It's, um, the live stream was a mess this morning. I apologize. <laughs> um, announcements. Okay, uh, so our next food bank is May 8th and 9th, coming up next weekend. Um, we got uh, kind of out of the blue, 7th and 8th, see? 7th and 8th. So uh, it's next weekend, next Friday and Saturday. Please come. <laughs> if you come here on, on the 8th, that's good. If you come here on the 9th, that's good. If you come here on the 7th, that's good too. So any of those days are great. Guys, next weekend is Mother's Day. Just please remember that. The cards are out. Um, you know, just remember next weekend is Mother's Day. It's, I look at the calendar. That way I make sure to, to get the cards. That's why. Anyway. Um, so uh, next thing, next food, uh, food bank next week, um, we got a case of light bulbs. We got like a pallet of light bulbs just kind of showed up out of the blue that we'll be giving away. Um, it's, it's weird. I, the, the, they called me, FedEx called me on Thursday like, hey, we got a truck for you tomorrow. I'm like, of what? <laughs> it's like, well, they're light bulbs. It was like, oh, okay. Well, we didn't say we wanted light bulbs, but we got a pallet of light bulbs. Here's the thing, though, is that of the things that we give away that have a long-term lasting help to a, a family, those LED light bulbs are whatever they are, $20 a box. They're not cheap, and they are to, you know, they can help lower utility bills. So I, it's a wonderful thing that we can help give away um, you know, as part of the, the food bank stuff. So I'm actually really excited to do that. I hope that it blesses many, many people when we, when we give those away. Um, our missions update, if you've been following along, uh, man, it, Matthias is, is here, but man, whoever it is that's running their construction projects over in Uganda, um, there's some folks here that could take some lessons from them. They have like rebuilt a house, they've built a new dorm, they've got uh, new classrooms going on, um, they're, they, they're built, it's all brick construction. Um, clearly lumber prices are not the same in Uganda as they are here, um, or maybe they are, I have no idea, but um, they are just cranking away. Um, it was great to have Ray here last week. Um, I have not seen um, any new updates from, from Thailand and Myanmar, but um, I do know that uh, the UN was talking about um, calling, ge- calling it genocide 
um, what's, what's going on over there. Um, and the same thing, the UN this week also condemned China um, for the, the genocide against the Uyghurs, which was, was very surprising to me to hear that come out. Um, but, but they did do that. Um, you know, uh, locally, and this is, is uh, I'm not going to talk too much about this because it's a theme for our message for today, is our, is our local missions, is our local spreading of the gospel. Um, that really is our, our focus and the heart of our, of our, mission, of our message for today. Um, but please keep that on your hearts and on your minds. Um, so Secret Church sort of happened. It was, it was online on, uh, on Friday. Obviously, um, I was not here. Nathan was not here. Um, there were a few folks that we reached out to that got the, the key to, to watch online. Um, it's funny, uh, I, um, but David Platt, the, the whole thing of that was missions. That was the whole theme of Secret Church. It is still available to us if, um, if anyone wants to, to watch it. Um, please let me know. We have the study guides. Um, you can watch it at your own pace on your own time instead of having to sit there for, for five hours. Um, you can break it up into increments or, you know, wait a little while and they'll actually put it on YouTube and they break it up into hour-long increments, which is kind of nice um, also. But it really is worth your time. Um, you know, it's, it's a mix. It's a, it's a different secret church than what he's done the last few times. There was a lot of prayer breaks, a lot of shorter intervals, but there was a ton of scripture in there. And the whole purpose, um, and again, it's, it leads right to our message today, is, is mission, is mission-focused, is proclaiming the gospel. And that's what our, our whole message is about today. Um, tonight, we have a poverty class here at the church. It's right on topic with all of this. Um, so uh, we're going to have a food bank meeting, which is just going to be to get everybody on the same page for food bank stuff um, at 5, and then we're going to follow that up with the class at 6. So if you can come, it's going to be great. It's just going to talk to us about um, what poverty is like, what it's like to live in poverty, the challenges that folks that are in poverty face, and how we can help see them and address them. And let me tell you, that is laser, where I'm laser focused, is on seeing people in their needs, seeing their suffering, and being able to help. Um, so I say it's worth your time to come tonight. I think it's going to be about 45 minutes um, she's going to speak um, tonight. So if you can come to that, that would be fantastic. Um, we have the fifth Sunday coming up, uh, Memorial Weekend. Uh, we'll have the, the kiddos speak. Um, please remember we have the, the Bibles at the back um, of the church. Um, these are two weeks old now, but they're still certified fresh, I guarantee you. Um, we have two jokes from Miss Carolyn and one from Miss Amanda. <clears throat> are, you guys, are you guys ready? All right. So why do the phone wear glasses? Because it lost all of its contacts. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a good one, right? It got some groans. That was great. All right. So what did the right eye say to the left eye? Between you and me, something smells. <laughs> it's a solid one. Okay, so let's jump into our message for today. So I open today with, with a challenge. And like I said, our, our, our entire focus is proclaiming the gospel, speaking to people. And it, I, I want to make sure that we're clear about this. We want to proclaim the gospel to people that do not know Jesus. And we have a really a unique opportunity. There are a bunch of people in our community, in our town right now, who are not here. They're not here at church. They do not know Jesus. And we want to reach those people, the people that have not heard the gospel before in our community and around the world. So we're going to start off with kind of a, a challenge. 
How many of us know the Christmas story? Everyone's hand should go up. We should all know the... If I, I failed miserably. If you don't know, please raise your hand. Um, but let me ask you a question. That is, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we celebrate Christmas? We celebrate Christmas because we are celebrating Emmanuel, God with us. This amazing time, unique time, when God chose to come to the earth to fulfill his promises. God manifested himself here on earth. So here's the challenge, and that is, how would you tell someone the story of Christmas? How would you tell someone about Christmas? Would you tell them about the history of Christmas, about Jesus coming to earth? Remember that these are they're real events. It needs to be factually accurate. Remember that it fulfilled prophecy. There's over 150 prophecies, specific prophecies. The entire Old Testament is full of prophecies, but over 150 specific prophecies that Christ fulfilled in his coming. Why was it a singular event in human history? Why has there been nothing like it before and nothing like it since Christ came? I was thinking about when, uh, when Moses received the, the Ten Commandments, when he was going up and down on the mountain and communing with God. It was a time when, when God came to the earth. It was not at all like when Jesus came. It was very, very radically different. When Jesus came, he came both as fully man and as fully God. He was tempted and tried. He was hungry. He lived and grew. He learned. But he was fully God. No other time in history has God done that. It's an amazing thing to think about. This. It's just something for us to, to try and wrap our heads around. I have no answers. But God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is unchanging. And yet, he was able to author himself into earth, to write himself into our story, to project himself as fully man and fully God here. And in there, he was able to be dynamic. He was able to be born as a baby, to grow into a man, to live and to die. That's an amazing conundrum, isn't it? To think about the unchanging God in his full power and glory coming here to earth and yet fully man, suffering all of the things that we do. That's an amazing thing. But traditionally, when we talk about Christmas, we, we go to Luke chapter 2. It's our favorite thing, right? It's Christmas, Charlie Brown. Here it is, Luke chapter 2. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them at the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. 
and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Wow, there it is. Christ, come to us. You got it in your head? Everybody, you got it? All right, so now comes the tough part. Now you got to tell the Christmas story. We just heard it. You got it in your head? Now you got to take away the nativity. All of it. Can't say a word about the nativity. No Mary, no Joseph, no angel, no star, no shepherds, no wise men, no manger, no stable. Remember, still has to be the story of Christmas. It still has to be the story of Jesus coming to earth. It still has to cover the real events. It still has to be factually accurate. It still has to cover the prophecies that were fulfilled. It has to convey the importance of Christmas, why this was a singular event in human history. Got it? You give up yet? I did. I gave up very quickly. But you turn in your Bible to our verse for today, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. That's exactly what this is. This is the Christmas story from a supernatural perspective. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the dark not has overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Focus on that verse 14. There it is. So last week, or a couple weeks ago, we talked about the life and the person of John who wrote this. We talked about the striking differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the difference between those Gospels and John's Gospel. We talked about how John's Gospel takes a different view, a more supernatural view, an angel's view, a heavenly perspective on some of these events. And John, he tells the Christmas story with Jesus' heavenly genealogy. And that summary, again, is in verse, four, in verse 14. The Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the purpose of the gospel, it means good news, is clear. When we don't have to guess or wonder, John makes this purpose abundantly clear. He's the only one of the gospel writers who does this. It's in uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When we proclaim the gospel, this is what we are proclaiming. We are proclaiming that people would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that in believing that they would have life in his name. It's funny that that God chooses to partner with us to spread his message. He's proven with countless times, you think about Abraham or Noah, that he doesn't necessarily need us to spread the gospel, but he chooses us to partner with him to spread the gospel. And I want to take a new angle on that. Because I think there is something that's particularly applicable to our society today, right now, that makes us as ambassadors for the word more effective and more necessary than ever. Because, see, God is not like any other force, any other human-derived force in the world. He is unlike anything else that we experience. He is not like any human-derived power or construction, any corporation, anything, if you can think of. He works in a very, very different way. He works in relationships, person to person. He works in such amazingly large ways that he can create the universe, that he speaks and black holes are formed. And yet he works on the individual level that he sustains each and every one of our individual breath. And he chooses to partner with us because It's such a striking difference between how our world works, especially today. We're going to contrast that because God is not deceitful. He is not abusive. He is not manipulative. He doesn't take his power and lord it over us in such a way that we feel crushed and oppressed. And we're going to contrast that with a lot of the forces in our world today. But this is what we proclaim, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, and by belief that you may have life in his name. There are two things that we didn't bring up a couple of weeks ago, attributes of God that I wanted to make sure that I I got in today's message, because they are unique about, about Jesus. So this is kind of an aside thing, but just store this away somewhere in your memory banks, because when we talk about the Trinity, when we talked about this briefly a uh, uh, couple of weeks ago, there's a couple of things that, that we didn't get to. But they're, they're unique because both God and Jesus receive prayer. It's unique to them. If you want to talk about Jesus, his, his uh, deity, that he is fully man and fully God, this is one of the things that you can talk about because both Jesus and God receive prayer. You can contrast that with the Holy Spirit who helps us pray. He is the the called alongside one, the Holy Spirit. Helps us pray when we don't know what to pray. Amazing thing about about the Trinity. But both Jesus and God receive prayer. And both Jesus and God receive worship. It's one of the most uncomfortable things that we read about when we we read the, the, the Gospels, is when Jesus is receiving worship. 
when the ladies are, are wiping his feet or, or anointing his head, we're like, mm, that's, you know, that's God. What are you doing? But they receive worship. And that is unique to them. No one else. If you look through the entire gospel, all of the prophets, all of the other speakers in the Bible would not receive worship until they always point to God. And the Holy Spirit does the same thing. The Holy Spirit always points to God. But God and Jesus receive worship. That is unique to them. I said our whole point for today, though, is to talk about sharing the gospel. How can we share the gospel with others? And I think one of the things that, that comes up with us constantly is that we feel almost ashamed of the gospel. We have this, in need, this hesitancy, this, ugh, this block that comes in front of us when we talk about going to somebody that we don't know or even someone that we do know and telling them about God. And it's weird because gospel, it actually means good news. It's weird that we have this thing that we're like, yeah, I don't want to give them good news. I really don't want to tell anybody the good news that I have. I would like to keep that good news to myself. Derek was, it was funny. Derek gave me this illustration. I was talking through this message with him yesterday, and uh, he gave me this. He was like, yeah, it's kind of like when you go to the restaurant and you come home with leftovers and you don't want to share them. <laughs> you have this really good stuff and you want it. You don't really want to share it. It's like, well, it's, it's good stuff, yes, but your brothers can have some, right? And I tell my kids all the time, when we talk about sharing the gospel, I tell them all the time, don't quit. You know, it's one of the things, that's, it's, it's the greatest commandment, was, not the greatest commandment, but the great commission that we have, is to go out and to spread the gospel. Yet we stop ourselves all the time. We stop ourselves. We always do this, I don't think they'll like it. I don't think they want to hear it. I don't want to sound like one of those... Bible thumpers. I don't want to be the guy in the white shirt with a tag on knocking on your door going, can I help you with something today? <laughs> we don't want to do that. But we stop ourselves. And in there, we assume that we can't. We don't run forward until someone else tells us to stop. That's one of the things I, I tell the kids when they're playing sports. It's like, whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's sports or school or music, take it as far as you possibly can. Let somebody else tell you that you're not good enough. Let somebody else tell you that you can't go any further. Run until you fall down and then get up and run again. Don't stop yourself. Don't not start because you're afraid of what will happen. Don't quit when you're halfway down the field just because you think somebody else is faster than you. Run as fast as you can. Make them beat you. And I want you guys to take that spirit, especially when it, talks, when it comes to talking about the gospel. Just, just go and do it. Do it until somebody makes you stop. Run until you can't run anymore. Run until somebody else beats you. And if they beat you there with the gospel, <laughs> shucks. <laughs> so part of this, though, and, and believe me when I say this, that the gospel message is a welcome relief from the message of our culture, and we're going to get there in just a, just a few minutes. But whenever we embark on any project, and we're talking about a project, when we talk about proclaiming the gospel, this is something that we are doing intentionally. Whether it's building a building or a new mission or any sort of project, the book of Nehemiah is a guide. If you're wanting to embark on anything, it doesn't really matter what it is, going through and reading the book of Nehemiah is a great way to start. 
because it goes through everything. It starts with developing the vision for your project, gathering your resources, assessing the work area, implementing your project, and overcoming obstacles. They're all right there in Nehemiah. But we're going to go to the specific part, and that is assessing. That is looking at the ground. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 if you want to turn there in your, in your Bibles. See, Nehemiah, he gets this report back that Jerusalem is, is in shambles, that the people are hurting, that they're suffering. And that's really relevant, right? That's what we're talking about. Is there's a bunch of people in our community that are suffering. And he hears about the state of Jerusalem, and he is just torn to shreds about it. First thing he does is he prays. He fasts and he prays. He spends over 30 days fasting and praying about this. Now, we're not going to go through that part. We're going to skip forward to chapter 2. Because this is after Nehemiah has, he's fasted and he's prayed about it. He's gone to the king about it and he's gathered the resources that he needs. And now he has arrived in Jerusalem. It's important to note, one of the first things Nehemiah does is he rests. He always takes time to rest. It's one of the things we're really bad at is taking time to rest. And that's just as important as the time that we put into work that we gather ourselves and we take time to rest ourselves and we take care of ourselves before we go out and do our project. So Nehemiah, he's taken three days, he's rested, and now he's going out to assess the work site. He wants to define the scope of his project in construction terms. He asks the question, what is the job site like? We know what we want to do. We know where we want to do it. We have resources from the king. What are the conditions like where we will be building? And that is us. We know we want to spread the gospel. We know we want to do it in Fruta. We have resources from God. And a good deal of the message this morning will will deal with this assessment of the conditions and the hearts and minds of the people we want to reach with the gospel. So let's jump to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. It says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. That's just to say that before we embark on any project, that we should take an assessment. Should we go, and notice he goes out at night, not when anyone else is around. He's not making a big show of it. He's not out there to, you know, make a statement. He's out there to get real eyes on where they will be working, on what they will be doing, to see exactly how bad the damage is, what this project is actually going to entail. And that's what we're going to talk about. By way of an example, I've been reading a book that, that Ken loaned me. It's, it's a great book. It's about these missionaries that were, that were in Ecuador um, after World War II. And 
I can't imagine. Obviously, these guys had not heard of air conditioning. That's all I can say. Because they went to this place where there was no air conditioning, no running water, no electricity. And they, when they lived, their whole purpose being to spread the gospel. And so they get down into, into this place, and it's, it's crazy. They talk about, you know, hiking six days, you know, with their heavy packs over to, uh, to get to the place where they're going to be on their, their mission work. They're hardcore. It's crazy. I mean, they go out there, and then they're, like, hacking down, you know, building buildings. And when you see the pictures in, in the book of what they built, and I'm like, you didn't have, like, a cordless drill at all? Like, you didn't have, a, you know, a temporary out the corner that you could run an extension cord? You did all that? Okay, so I guess I'm not as hardcore as I thought I was. But the people that they're working with, they're the Hivaros and the Atsuharas, these tribes that have been at war with each other since anyone can remember. They're, they're literally, they're headhunters. They actually, one of the things they do is they'll cut off the heads of their fallen enemies. And, they, they, you know, when you see the things about them, if people shrink in heads, that's exactly what they do. They take this, the, the person's head and they go through this elaborate process to, to shrink their head to, to create this, this talisman, this idol. And these folks, they go down there and they're giving them jobs, they're giving them clothes, they're giving them medicine. But they have to learn a new language. It's a language that's never been written before. These folks have never written their language. So they have to learn how to, to write it. And then, so once they learn how to speak it, then they learn how to write it. Then they translate the gospel into this language. I know, incredible. But the people that they're talking to, their lives are consumed by pride, by anger, and by fear. They are proud. So when they feel that they have been insulted, they have to go to war. They feel like they're obligated to. They're angry with their enemies. They're looking for the destruction of their enemies. And they're also, at the same time, they're afraid. They're afraid of being killed themselves. And they're consumed with guilt for the evil things they have done. And believe me, they know that, that it's evil. And they're constantly afraid of evil spirits that they can strike them down at any moment for any reason, as well as they live in the jungles of Ecuador with no electricity, no running water, no modern medicine. They face all of the sicknesses and disease and starvation that comes along with that. And here's the thing. When one of their people would get sick and would die or had an accident and would die, a witch doctor would use uh, this fermented drink and, and some hallucinogenic herbs and would go into a trance and then would ask the spirits which of the person's enemies had cursed them to cause this to happen. So once them, they gave them a name, then they would go on the warpath. They would go door to door, you know, go into their neighbors, which, I mean, I, I kind of miss this time when we'd get together as a group and go raid the next village over. But they would get together as a tribe, and they would go and raid to get revenge on this person the witch doctor had named. And if they were successful, they would try to take that person's head because they believed that if they could take that person's head and make the talisman, that would keep the evil spirits away. It would break the curse that had been placed on them. But of course, that would then bring about retaliation because they had just killed someone. And so then the other tribe would say, oh, well, they, they killed this guy, so now we got to go get revenge. And this cycle went on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So into this, into this cycle of endless revenge killings from inside and outside these tribes, into this cycle of poverty, into this cycle of sickness and disease, 
these missionaries go. It's kind of obvious to us sitting here that, of course, when they proclaimed the gospel, when, when they humbled themselves and served without asking for anything in return, that was pretty radical. When they showed forgiveness instead of seeking vengeance, that was radical. When they talked about eternal hope, hope in the face of sickness and disease and starvation, that was radical. That was the jungle of Ecuador. So let's look at, at modern America, at our tribes. I was reading, because it, it's hard, especially you know, being here in the church and growing up the way that I did, to get a good read on what is going on in the, in the world, in the secular world. So I found this article. It's from, uh, from Psychology Today, and I think it encapsulates a lot of what people believe and what they're being taught outside of the church. It says, we evolved so that we can live. Thus, we could also say that we live to evolve. So there's a circularity here. Evolution is the process that allowed organisms to survive and thrive. Humans, along with every other living animal or plant, owe our existence to it. Our purpose is to evolve during our lifetime because that is consistent with our evolutionary purpose. Thus, an answer to the ultimate question of what is the purpose of life is that we are here so that we can continue to live, adapt, learn, and grow. A purpose of life and our purpose is to continue to evolve. When we think of evolution as meaning as, as a process of learning, adapting and growing to be more effective and efficient, we see evolution everywhere. Kids learn more advanced skills and concept in school, and this continues on through college and throughout their careers. Growth in terms of profitability is one of the primary goals of any business. Technology is always evolving, offering faster internet speeds, more powerful computers, better productivity tools, and more engaging and entertaining experiences. Athletes strive to improve their skills and performances through their better nutrition and training methods. They aim to win more championships and set records. Musicians and artists want to become more technically proficient, creative, and successful. Communities and societies do not only grow in number, but they try to serve the needs of the people to enable the citizens to live healthier, happier lives. Even with most religions, we seek to grow in our faith, to be a better Christian. I don't think so. Most Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or Jew. On the biological level, learning recruits the reward systems in the brain so that the learning is reinforced. We evolve to grow and learn, to become better than we were the day before so we might survive and thrive in general. We feel happy when we learn and grow. One could say that this happiness is a purpose of life as well, yet it could also be said to be the byproduct of fulfilling our life purposes of learning and growing. So what is the purpose of life? An answer, as opposed to the answer, to the ultimate question is that we exist to continue to exist. I can't think of a more depressing statement to say to someone. We evolve to evolve. This is, the fundament, this is fundamental to every living organism. Inherent to our existence that we learn, adapt, and grow. Health, happiness, and longevity are the payoffs of this. Since our biological evolution is the foundation of our existence, a purpose of our lives is to continue to evolve during our lifetime by learning and growing. Each day, our purpose is to strive to be a little bit better than the day before and to continue this evolutionary process throughout our lifetime. This purpose in life might sound like a simple or anticlimactic answer to the ultimate question, but there's more to this answer than at first glance. Our purpose in life to learn and grow throughout our lifetime also holds the key to how we should live our lives. 
That is an entirely self-centered, man-centered view of life. Survive, learn, grow, change. Change into what? What am I supposed to change into? Notice, though, there was no duty. There was no obligation. There was nothing to say or even acknowledge God, which I kind of expected. There's no duty to or obligation to or acknowledgement of, of other people. Success is measured in change. Am I better at what I want to be better at than I was yesterday? I set my goals. My performance is measured against me. I am the yardstick. So what happens, though, when my goals conflict with your goals? Well, obviously mine are superior. And yours are superior to you. But notice how good is subjective. It's self-centered. And bad is subjective and self-centered. The other thought that occurred to me is, so what happens when I get older and I can't physically do what I once did? Am I no longer purposeful? Have I outlasted my usefulness? He's also preaching a life of constant conflict. But this we hear all the time. This message is resounded throughout, throughout our culture. He lived his best life. You only live once. I'm living my truth. You go, queen. You go, king. Treat yourself. School, work, family, relationships, all of them serve me. They serve the me. If we wanted to contrast that with the, the message of the Bible, what is the Christian purpose? Well, first, I don't, I don't even get out of the gate before I recognize Christ as the cornerstone of my life. I can't move unless my foundation is built on, on Christ, the solid rock. Then he says, love God and love everyone else. That's what he says to do. He says, love God and love everyone else. All the commandments, they branch off of those two things. 1 John 4, 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made, is com made, is made complete in us. 1 John 4.8, if you go back to that, the word that, that John used, we've heard this a lot. It's, it's trendy in, in Christianity. It's agapos, agape. There's several different words. There's about seven that are used in Greek to mean love. There's four or five of them, depending on your translation, that are, that are used in the Bible. This is agape, agape love. I, I put this quote in your... Well, you don't have bulletins. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. It says, agape could be defined as charity. However, we often think of charity nowadays as giving away money or things, which doesn't encompass all of what agape is about. Agape love is unconcerned with the self and concerned with the greatest good of another. Agape isn't born just out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will and 
as a choice. We choose to love. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. Unconcerned with the self, self-denying, concerned with the greatest good of others, not based on emotion or feelings or even familiarity or attraction. We choose to love. We choose to. It requires us to be faithful, to be committed, and for us to make sacrifices. It also requires hope. And we do not expect anything in return. We read this a couple weeks ago, but Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But it says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God is love. Agape love. Sacrificial love. A choice that we make. A self-denying love. So, I want to talk about another aspect of our culture. That's one side of it. And believe you me, I'm not trying to, I don't want this to sound political. And the reason for that is it, that's not my point. Okay, we're going to talk about some current issues. We're going to bring those things up. But the point of those, the things that I want you to see is a trend in our culture. It is what is happening at large to all of us, every single one of us in our culture today here. And this is unique to America, by the way. This is a uniquely American phenomenon, and it's unique probably in the last 10 or 15 years, something that has started to happen in our culture. So, like I said, I'm going to bring up some some current political topics, but I want you to understand why I am bringing them up, because it's to illustrate a point of what is going on in in our culture today. I really do strive to be apolitical. I don't care about political parties. I don't, want, I don't want to tell you how to vote or what to think. What I do want to do is illustrate a point, okay? And what I want to do is I want to contrast the message of the gospel with the messages that people are receiving in our culture with the purpose of energizing us to share the gospel. Because, you see, abuse is about power and it's about control. Abusers are generally... They're pretty good-looking. They're successful to an extent. They're nice to start off with, with their victims. And they're generally well-spoken. So you think about the average everyday person who is not here this morning. They're going to go to work on Monday. They're going to slog through their day. And even if they have a mediocre day, if it was, if it was fine, there's nothing bad, nothing good, they're going to eat dinner. They're going to sit down on the couch to watch TV. And maybe they're going to wonder, what is it all for? What am I doing with my life? What is my purpose? We just read that therapist is going to tell you, be the best you you can be every day. Your species hit the lottery and were lucky enough to evolve to be the dominant life form on earth. Survive, learn, change, and then die a meaningless death. History may or may not consider you to have been a decent human being, and your species may or may not survive. Free will? That's an illusion of predetermined genetic societal programming. Hey, try not to use up too many resources over your lifetime. There are a lot of homo sapiens on the planet already, okay? We can see why 
depression and suicide are at an all-time high. If you're a teenager right now, you go to school, and what does your school tell you? Well, first of all, that you got to go to school because education is the key to life. And I would agree that it is a key to, to material comfort. However, if you are white, you are inherently evil and racist. It is part of your genetic and societal programming. And if you are any color other than white or Asian, you are inherently less capable than white or Asian people of succeeding in American society. You will struggle to get an ID, use the internet, or vote. You can't help but commit crime. In fact, we take criminals and we hold them up as martyrs for your people. Because the message is that your goodness and evilness was predetermined by your genetics. Things you have no control over. If you are white or Asians, the best you can do is to be a lesser form of evil. If you are black or brown, the best you can do is to be a lesser victim. You can be president of the United States and you are still a victim because of your genetics. You are told it is hateful to believe in biological sex. That is emotional abuse. You know, I used to see it all the time. It was usually a man. You know, we'd get a call, usually on a Friday or a Saturday night. He would physically and verbally assault his wife or his girlfriend. Then, when they would separate, the phone calls and, and the messages would start. I'm going to kill myself, and it will be all your fault. I can't live without you. I'm going to die without you. That is emotional abuse. And that is the message of the media and the body politic in our society right now. If you go on the streets in major cities, right, well, we live in a really nice place. We live in a really nice place. There's murder and rape and rioting and looting and arson and robbery and domestic violence. All of those things are happening and they're increasing over 30% in some cities right now. But if you say, hey, wait a minute, law and order matter. Murder, rape, and rioting, and looting, and arson, riot, those things are not okay. Biology matters. You say that, your abuser attacks you. You get gaslighted. You are a bigot and a racist. How dare you? You are part of the system of oppression. You should be silenced. You should lose your job and your family should be harassed, not only online, but in person, in public, and at your home. See, abuse is about power and control. I was thinking about, Greta Thunberg actually gives us a, a great example of this. If you think about, I'm going to pick on him because I can, Al Gore is a classic example of an emotional abuser. If you remember his movie, An Inconvenient Truth, it's still used in schools today. It is full of lies, intentional misstatements about the status of the climate and global warming. And when he was called on it, what did he say? He said, if I had told you the truth, you would not have been scared and you would not have acted. That is emotional abuse. I lied to manipulate your emotions to get power over you and to get you to do what I want. We've been playing this game for over 60 years. I love the, you know, I love movies. I love sci-fi. And I was just kind of doing this list. If you guys remember back in the 60s, remember the movies, there was Soylent Green and, and Logan's Run? Why? Because the world was headed for famine. We were going to run out of food in nine years. People 
sold their homes, left their jobs, and went to go live in communes where they farmed because they believed that famine was coming, that worldwide famine was coming. 1970s, 2001, the year we made contact, the sun was going to burn out and we were going to be left on a cold, lifeless ball. That's what that movie is about. Remember Blade Runner? I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. Acid rain was going to wipe out all of the plants and all of the fish, fish in all the lakes and oceans. That's what makes it a, a desert. 1980s, there was going to be another ice age. Remember? We had some of the warmest winters on record back in the, in the 70s. That's when my business took off. All the, the ski resorts put in snowmaking in the, in the late 70s because we'd had all these record warm winters. It was followed by record cold winters. And they're like, oh man, we're going back into another ice age. 1990s was the hole in the ozone layer. Everyone was going to get cancer and die. UV rays were going to scorch the earth because we used hairspray that had CFCs in the can. Remember, well, you remember the movie 2012? It was global warming. The polar ice caps were going to melt in nine years. That's what they said. The polar ice caps were going to melt in nine years. Now it's climate change. But poor Greta, and I mean this, she has been told all her life she has watched movies in school. She has been taught by people that she trusts. She has been taught by her family that the world is ending. It is ending, and it's man's fault. It's all man's fault. And if she doesn't do what the climate scientists tell her, she is to blame too. That is emotional abuse. That's why she says, if you deny climate change, you are evil. If you question climate change, you are evil. If you don't do what I say right now, we're all going to die and it will be all your fault. That's emotional abuse. And she has been a victim of abuse and manipulation. She has been lied to over and over and over again by people that she trusts. And that is not to say that the issues aren't real. That isn't to say that crime and race and poverty aren't real problems. It isn't to say that we don't need to be good stewards of the environment. We do. It says so in Genesis chapter 1. It's not to say that people don't feel alienated and unwelcome in their own bodies. And we are obligated to treat every single human being with love and with respect and to help them in their suffering. We never want to have anyone suffer. But that is part of the effectiveness of the abuse. See, if they were fake issues, the abuse wouldn't be effective. It's become popular now, but I'm sure we've all heard of the term gaslighting. It comes from a movie. It's actually called Gaslight. It was made in 1944. But in the movie, the husband is abusive, and he wants to get rid of his wife, and he's intentionally trying to drive her crazy. So they have these, these gas-fired lamps around the house, and when he goes by and she isn't in the room, he raises her, he lowers the light, and he moves stuff around the house. So when she comes into the room and she says, is, is it dark in here to you? He says, no. No, it's the same that it always is. When she said, wasn't the chair over there? No, what are you talking about? The chair's in the exact same place that it's always been. That is gaslighting. It's emotional abuse. The lamp is real. The chairs are real. Everything in there is real. It's the intent. Now, imagine that conversation differently. If she said, is it dark in here to you? And he said, yeah, honey, quite frankly, I'm worried about the gas bill. So I, I've been turning the lights down. Can you read okay? Um, can we keep it down for a while? Because um, we need to save some money. See, the issue didn't change. The issue is real. The lights are real. The lamps are real. 
but the abuse is gone. Now they're having a conversation because she can counter. She can say, I really can't see well enough to read, but maybe we could not use the lamps maybe like two nights a week to save some money and still keep them bright so I can read it in the evenings. See, when we address the issues honestly, then we can have a conversation and compromise can happen. Versus only evil people turn their lights up. You want us all to die. That's why you turn the lights up. You see the difference? But it brings us back to our point. People are raw. They are on edge. They're hurt. They have been and continue to be abused and manipulated, and we are no different. I was thinking about our cell phones. And this is, this is very true. thing is that if you were in a relationship, married or not, and you came up to me and you told me that your partner was listening in on and recording your phone conversations, reading your search history, had put a GPS in your purse, I would call the cops. And I would get you into a shelter, ASAP. Because that is the behavior of a violent stalker. That is not the behavior of a loving partner. And I assure you, as a salesperson, I don't do that. That is not how business relationships work. That is not how I treat my customers, and that is not how my vendors treat me. That is not a healthy relationship. Remember a couple of years ago when, when people started to notice that they would have a conversation, like they'd be out on a hiking trail and they'd be talking about something and suddenly ads would pop up on their phones? They would, you know, what's going on? What was the reaction? What did the phone company say? They gaslighted them and said, no, what are you talking about? That's not happening. That's not real. That's not happening. We aren't listening in. You're imagining things. The lights are the same. I didn't turn them down. Everyone from the government, corporations, the media organizations, social media, peers, family, they continue to try to manipulate their emotions in search of power and control. You want to know why everyone is the way that they are, why they're divided, why they're angry, why they're so on edge? They're being abused. And quite frankly, a lot of them have taken on the mantle of abuser. So into this society, we proclaim the message of the gospel. That's the assessment. The walls are broken down, the gates are burned. This is our project, is to go out to these folks in their suffering and to proclaim the gospel to them. I think it might resonate. It did with everyone here, didn't it? We'll close with, um, with 1 Peter 2.9. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor, the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. 
Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you are suffering for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. All of us were born into the bondage of sin and death. We have experienced good and evil. We know them both intimately because we all have good and evil inside of us. But God, the maker of heaven and earth, does not force, does not lie, does not manipulate. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the great I am. And you get to choose your relationship with God. God has empowered you to choose not only your position in life, but your position in death. And he says that he is the light of life for all of mankind that shines in the darkness. But you are free to choose the darkness. You cannot earn his love and grace and redemption. He offers it as a free gift. You can receive it or leave it. Your choice. So here we are, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the, bo- the, gospel, of the Bible. Why? That by hearing these things, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we come before you. Our hearts are broken for our brothers and sisters that are around us. Father, we want them to know you because we know that in your voice, in your hands, in your arms come healing, that your burden is light, that that when you speak, peace comes, that in your arms there is rest. Father, we know that there are many people right here in our very valley that are hurting, that need you. Please help us to speak, to act, to live, in a way that is commendable to you and that acts as a lampstand, that your light would shine brightly. Father, we pray for a special blessing on our children. They have it rough. Father, please help them to hear you, to see you, to know you, to draw closer to you. Please help us to see their suffering and to make it better. Father, we lift up our valley to you. We lift up every church in this valley, Father, that your word would ring out to the streets, that it would not be closed inside the doors. Father, please send us out. Please give us the resources and the words and the actions that are pleasing to you. Father, we are seeking to be your church and to be on your mission. Amen. Yeah, We can go over to the fellowship hall. Yeah. Excellent. Let's go do that.